City Church in Over the Rhine is cultivating the kind of family Jesus introduced to the world in the city of Cincinnati. We're glad you're choosing to listen to a sermon from our weekly service. We would love to meet you. Visit us on Instagram or at citychurchotr.com. Enjoy. Good morning. Um, That was a week. Uh, My name's Chris, and uh, I'm the pastor here. And I, I really love every May when we uh, have Flying Pig Sunday because it's always just a little bit of a smaller crowd. And then I know I'm amongst my people. <laughs> people that don't run miles and miles. And I feel like I'm even more among my people today because if you're here in spite of this weather, you must really love Jesus and so do I. <laughs> and so it's always fun um, to be with people on this day and also We have lots of people from our church either running it or supporting, and so we have been praying for them. Um, This morning, uh, I'm going to actually make a hard right turn before we get into the message. Um, I have a little bit of, like, harder news this morning. Um, On Monday afternoon, a woman that goes to our church, Amy, uh, or Monday evening, passed away. And uh, this is Amy. You might recognize her. Um, spe- specifically, she was a part of Block, so Block Ministries. When you see her, you would often see her with Dwight and Stephanie, Dwight's who preached last week, and um, she passed away Monday evening. Uh, Amy, um, one of my, I haven't had a ton of interaction with her. Once that I did was she had a documented broken arm at the end of December, and we prayed on December or January 1st. We came, and we actually met in the family room, and we did prayer and pancakes, and we prayed over people that needed physical healing. And that Tuesday, after an x-ray had shown a break in her arm, that Tuesday she went back to the doctor, and there was nothing. And so Amy, I was blown away by the goodness of Jesus that he would touch her arm. And um, now we know that Amy is with Jesus. And man, what a what a great day she's having. And um, I was texting a little bit with Stephanie Young this week, and she was talking a little bit about how Amy did know Jesus. And normally this is how we end a service, is by uh, preaching the gospel and and saying, look, this is something that we can respond to. But I felt like I wanted to just jump straight in to the news that changed Amy's life. And so if you're new here, if you're not quite sure about Jesus, or if you've been following Jesus for a long time, even as I was thinking about how to like exactly share this news. I was hit afresh by how good the gospel actually is and how much it's still for me, even though I am 20 or so years into this. Um, the decision that Amy made was that there are two kingdoms that are existing in this world and they are opposed to each other. These kingdoms are very different. One kingdom is perfect. It's the kingdom of God and the other kingdom is the kingdom that we're born into. And the problem with the kingdom that we're in is that we are stuck here um, but there is a way out. There's a way out. Now, the, the kingdom that we're in isn't all bad. What I love about the earthly kingdom is I get to be my own king, and it's awesome, except I've learned that I'm not that great of a king, and maybe you have too. And the decision that changed Amy's life wasn't to come here on January 1st and have her arm get healed by Jesus, but was to choose to follow Jesus and choose through his death and resurrection to go and go to a different kingdom. And the price of getting into that kingdom, the catch of getting into that kingdom is um, submission to a king. 
And if you read Matthew 5, 6, and 7, um, which I think is a great idea, it describes, Jesus is describing what the kingdom of God looks like. And it doesn't matter what theological background or religion you come from. If you read Matthew 5, 6, and 7, everybody can look at that and say, I'm in for that. The catch of Matthew 5, 6, and 7, the catch of the Sermon on the Mount, the catch of the kingdom of God, is that we can't have that kingdom without the king. And we get to celebrate and we get to actually choose to go to that kingdom. We get to choose to submit to a king and a king that's so loving. And it's a decision that changed Amy's life. And on a day that feels, uh, death feels a little bit more real, I want to remind all of us that one, this is the great news that we get to follow Jesus and we get to submit to a king who is so much better than you are and so much better than I am. And if you have not done that, this morning, this is the most important thing I'm going to say. It's all downhill from here. This morning, you get to actually choose to follow that king. And so when we go back into worship, there's going to be people in all four corners that want to pray for you about anything. Specifically, they would love to pray for you um, and with you as you would choose to align with a different kingdom. Um, That is why we gather on Sundays or Wednesday nights or Thursday nights is because we believe that there's a kingdom that's better than the one we were born into. And so um, I'm just going to pray. And, uh, and if that is news to you, um, I want to say, hey, this is why we're here. Come talk to us. And um, we would love to pray with you after this. Father, we thank you. Um, we thank you for Amy's life. God, I pray that you would be with her both biological and spiritual family. Specifically, would you be with the block community that she was a part of? And would you um, surround them and comfort them? And Father, I also pray for anyone here that um, has not made the decision to align with your kingdom and submit to your kingship. Father, we pray that today would be the day of salvation. Um, Would you give each one of us courage to choose or choose again to follow you? pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Um, Well, today I am uh, starting week four of a series called Jesus According to Jesus, because who better to learn about Jesus than Jesus himself, and it's really kind of a journey through the Gospel of John. Jesus said seven statements about himself, um, and they all started with the same phrase, but that phrase that they started with is actually rooted in Exodus 3, and so if you're a church person or you're not a church person, you've probably at least heard the story of the burning bush or the burning bush moment that Moses had where um, God, his people, Israel, are enslaved by Egypt. And God says, okay, I'm going to rescue them, and I'm going to send Moses. And he starts to speak to Moses through a burning bush. And Moses asks a very reasonable question. He said, who am I that I should go? And God doesn't actually answer that question. If you read it in Exodus 3, he doesn't say anything about who Moses is, but God's response is, I am with you. That's the response that he needed to have. And then in verse 13, Moses has the courage to say, okay, I've got one more question. Suppose I go to the Israelites and say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask me, what is his name? Then what shall I tell them? So if I go to them and I say that you are with me, who is the you that I should introduce you as? God said to Moses, verse 14, I am who I am. This is what you are to say to the Israelites, I am has sent me to you. So God first says, my name is I am. Or I am that I am. And in Hebrew, it's almost like this double breath. It's ech, yech. You got to really get in the back of your throat. I am. But then God says, that wouldn't be appropriate for you, Moses, to introduce yourself as, or even me as. You, Moses, cannot say I am. So I want you to introduce me as he is. 
which is another Hebrew name, and this is probably one you've heard, which is Yahweh, which is he is, or he is that he is. And so immediately after, he says Yahweh, that there is no, righteous, there's no human person that should be allowed to introduce themselves in the way that God first introduced himself to Moses. The, even the name Yahweh, or he is, was really highly regarded and revered, and it was, the vows were taken out, and it was only uttered once a year. I mean, all kinds of reverence around Yahweh, but even above, Yahweh is the first name that God said, and it's I am. And that phrase could only be uttered by God. And so that's the circumstance, the context with each one of these statements that Jesus introduces himself as. Because Jesus didn't just say uh, or introduce himself as bread or light or shepherd. But every one of these phrases, very simple, just a few words, every one of these phrases that Jesus said about himself started the same way. And to you it doesn't sound that profound, but to a Jewish person it would have been quite scandalous. Jesus starts by saying, I am. That's a big deal. That's a phrase regarded for only the divine. And to today... We're digging into first, who is Jesus, according to Jesus. One of the ways he introduces himself is I am, which would have been the most scandalous part of this. And then he uses imagery. He says, I am the true vine. And uh, this is the last chronological, so we're not going in chronological order. This is the last chronological I am statement that Jesus makes. This is in John 15. What's interesting about the biography of John is that he tells the whole story of his good friend Jesus, but he spends one-third of his gospel, one-third of his biography, in the final 24 hours of Jesus' life. So he slows way down because he knows what he was telling us that last day was really important, which includes John 15. So this is the night that Jesus was betrayed. It's the day before Jesus was crucified. He's giving some final big deal instruction. I want to reiterate some things. I want to teach you some things before I leave. One of them is John 15, where he introduces himself as the seventh and final I am statement. He says, I am the true vine. So John 15, verse 1 through 5, we're going to read it all right now, and then I'm going to kind of trail through it verse by verse. So John 15, 1, I am the true vine, and my father is the gardener. He cuts off every branch in me that bears no fruit, while every branch that does bear fruit he prunes, so that it will be even more fruitful. You are already clean because of the word I have spoken to you. Remain in me as I also remain in you. No branch can bear fruit by itself. It must remain in the vine. Neither can you bear fruit unless you remain in me. I am the vine. <clears throat> you are the branches. If you remain in me and I in you, you will bear much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. So verse 1, and Jesus is almost just defining terms. He says, I am the vine. My father is the gardener. And later on, Jesus says, and you are, we are the branches. So uh, Jesus is the vine. His father is the gardener. And the, the word, the phrase that as I was praying about the, today um, and the thing I felt like, okay, this is what I want to reiterate over and over again. You're going to hear me say it a few times because I think this is one of the big ideas that comes out of John 15. The, the vine is good and the gardener is trustworthy. So Jesus is the vine. The, the father is the gardener. The vine is good. When we abide, when we remain, when we connect to the vine, that's a good thing. He is good. He can be trusted. And so can the gardener. The gardener is trustworthy. And when you walk through John 15, there's almost two separate monologues that Jesus says. Verses 1 through 8, which is what we've read the most of, which Jesus says, hey, 
remain in me. Jesus says, remain in Jesus. And then, if you read 9 through 16, it's almost the same language, but it's a bit of a different um, focus. He says, also remain in my love. So 1 through 8 of John 15, remain in me. 9 through 16, remain in my love. But if you read both of them, both have the same end goal, which is to bear fruit. Jesus says, hey, the whole point of remaining in me is to bear fruit. The point of remaining in my love, what it's going to lead to is bearing fruit. Fruitfulness is the goal, and fruitfulness, it seems like, according to Jesus, is tied to prayer. So all of this, and we're just doing an overview of John 15, all of this is summarized in verse 16 when Jesus now says this. He said, you did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you so that you might bear fruit, fruit that will last. So that whatever you ask in my name, the Father will give you. So Jesus is saying to his disciples, and by extension he's saying to you, that you are chosen to bear fruit. We are all chosen to bear fruit. And he said, if you start to pray in accordance with that, I'm going to start giving it to you. So this is almost like cheating in prayer, but if you want more of your prayers to be answered, Jesus says, hey, you you should pray to to have me bear fruit in your life. He says, that's the way. If you want to get what you pray for, I promise you, I'm going to give you whatever you want if you're praying in accordance to my will. And my will is that you would bear fruit. If you're a gamer, this is like a prayer cheat code where you type it in and you like automatically win. If, If you're a finance person or you invest in stock, this is like legal insider trading. You know what's going to happen and you get to invest ahead of time. Praise God. He's giving you the key to getting prayers answered, which is, hey, if you pray this, if you pray for fruit to be happening in your life, I'm going to give it to you. D.A. Carson is a New Testament scholar, and he says that fruitfulness is an infallible mark of true Christianity. Fruitfulness is an infallible mark of true Christianity. So what is fruit? Because that is a little bit of a generic term. Um, Fruit is, and and the definition is wide, uh, but to the best of my ability, the the way I'm summarizing it, fruit is myself. If fruit is happening in me, I'm looking more and more like Jesus. And because of me looking more and more like Jesus, people are either starting to follow Jesus or follow Jesus deeper because they're connected to my life. So fruit is starting to change me. It's starting to change who I am, the way I behave, my thought patterns, The fruit of the Holy Spirit, which you find in Galatians, that's what's happening. Love, peace, patience, kindness. Those things are happening in me. And if you get around me and I'm bearing fruit, you're going to want to know the thing that I'm connected to. People want to know Jesus more or they want to come to know him when we're bearing authentic fruit. Um, And you know that if you're not truly connected to something or if you don't really know something, but you're trying to get somebody to do something anyway, like follow Jesus, you end up sounding more like a salesman than you do a real follower that's connected to the vine. A couple weeks ago, Catherine and I, we went to Greenwood, Indiana, which is where I'm from, and we were driving home, and we were having a really good conversation, but I saw that I had missed a call, and I listened to the voicemail, and it was our insurance person that said, hey, you need to call me about something to do with your insurance. And so, you know, we stopped our conversation once we heard that because that seemed like a big deal. Um, This had happened a couple years before. One of our rental properties somehow a 
uh, policy had lapsed, and for about 24 hours, we had a, a house that we owned that had no insurance on it, which was terrifying. Just thinking, you know, what if today's the day it burns down or flood or whatever? And um, so I was like, we need to call now. So I called immediately, and I got on the phone with one of the like lower salespeople, and he said, yeah, I just wanted to call and tell you that there's a new insurance instrument available to you. And I was like, oh, man, this, this was not the urgency that I felt like you communicated on your voicemail. That's what I said in my head. I was much more polite. And he said, it's amazing. He said, we're going to pay you to get hurt. I was like, I don't, I don't want that. <laughs> like, I'm actually angling to not have that happen. And he goes on, and he starts to tell me about how if I go to the hospital, I'll get $2,500. And if you have this policy, this is great. Bless, bless you. Um, but he was acting, I mean, first of all, I was upset. I was like, this is not an emergency. You're just selling me something. But I'm intrigued. And he said, for $2,500, or for $10 a month, if you go to the hospital, we're just going to pay you $2,500 right on the spot. And so I switch into, like, finance mode, and I'm doing the math. And I'm like, okay, I haven't been to the hospital in, like, 10 years, but maybe it'll happen. So I'm doing the math of what it's going to cost me each month to the chance that I do go. And I said, well, hey, let me ask you a question. Does this also cover Catherine? And he said, yeah, you know what? I don't know. And I was like, well, that's a, that's a big deal. Like, that's two people versus one. And so he puts us on hold for five minutes, and we're just sitting there. And I'm like, this is not, this is probably not something we're going to get. But I waited, and he came back, and he said, you know what? No, it doesn't. But you can get a policy for her for $18 a month. I was like, well, that's a little sexist, but okay. And uh, I said, well, okay, if this happens, and this is um, all in my head, by the way. I'm much more polite out there than I am in here. And uh, I was doing the math, and this is in no way an announcement, um, but I was like, well, hopefully in the next 12 to 24 months, Catherine has another baby. When, if that happens, then she'll go to the hospital. I said, hey, does this cover childbirth? And he said, you know what? That's a good question. I don't know. <laughs> I was like, surely someone's had to, like, with half a brain's had to ask this, because this is a numbers game to me, and I'm outnumbering this guy. And he comes back and he says no, and I was like, you know what, I don't think this is for us. And I hung up and I was angry, one, because he, he bait and switched me. And two, I was like, this guy, I know this guy doesn't actually believe in what he's selling. If he believed in what he was selling, he would know more about it. He just was trying to bump up a commission by an easy sell, and I am not an easy sell. How much more, can we make this jump? How much more, when we start talking about Jesus, but we're not actually in love with him. We're not actually connected to him. We're not really bought into the product, or the product isn't changing our life. When that happens, and you know evangelicals every now and then have this reputation, we sound like salesmen. Bait and switch is the direction that we go. And according to Jesus, when we're connected to him, fruit starts to happen. And when people see the fruit in your life, they are at least intrigued by the thing that you carry. You cannot give something away which you do not have. We cannot give what you do not have. It's the law of transaction. And so first, it starts by connecting, according to Jesus, connecting to the vine. We're not trying to give out fruit when we're not connected himself. Otherwise, Jesus would have had the biggest strategic miss of his ministry. Three and a half years, and he spends the first, most important 40 days alone, connecting to the Father. Yet, he was the most fruitful person ever to walk the earth. So Jesus says, I am the vine. And again, that phrase, I am, would have been the most scandalous part of the phrase. But the word, the vine, would have probably been pretty confusing. 
Because to you or to me, I hear vine and I think maybe Napa or wine or garden. To a first century Jew, there would have been a bunch of different scriptures that would have come to mind thinking about the vine. There would have been all kinds of scriptures that they would have immediately had a picture or at least an image of what the vine was. The vine was Israel. That through, if you read the whole Hebrew Bible or your Old Testament, the vine was Israel. So Isaiah 5, 7, the nation of Israel is the vineyard of the Lord of heaven's armies. Ezekiel 15, 6, the people of Jerusalem are like a grapevine growing among the trees of the forest. Psalm 80, verse 8, you transplanted a vine from Egypt. You drove out the nations and planted it. FYI, if you read the rest of those verses and those passages, none of them end well. All of them end with some kind of frustration that the vine isn't producing good fruit. Israel was the vine, and the vine wasn't doing so well. Psalm 80 is probably the clearest picture. If you read the whole psalm, the the guy that's writing it, Asaph, is begging God, God, would you come? Would you come back to the vine? Would you tend this vineyard that you've called your own because we're not producing fruit? He says, return to us, God Almighty. Look down from heaven and see. Watch over this vine. The root of your right hand has planted. The sun you have raised up for yourself. There's this prophetic sign in Psalm 80 where Asaph's saying, the vine that you've planted isn't doing so well. Would you come back? It's it's the thing you've planted by your right hand. It is your son. And 2,000, 2,000 years ago, Jesus comes and he says, I am the vine. So Israel was the vine, and now Jesus is coming, and he's saying, hey, that's, that's not how things are anymore. And what's happening in John 15, if we can go a little bit deeper for like five minutes into Old Testament Hebrew Jewish um, pictures, what Jesus is saying here is there was a covenant that exists, and now I'm introducing a new covenant. He's saying it used to happen this way, but now I'm giving you more clarity on how things are about to change. So again, five minutes. We're going to go a little bit deeper for a second because you guys have all emailed me and asked me, we want more covenantal theology pictures. And so I've heard your cries. Here it is. In the old covenant, the way that you connected to God was you had to connect to the vine. This is common imagery. The vine was Israel. You wanted to come to God, you had to connect to Israel. Jesus is saying that used to be the way it is. Now I'm the vine. Now you don't connect to a nation, you connect to me. In the old covenant, you used to be a servant of that nation or a servant of that God. And then later on in John 15, Jesus says, no, that's how it used to be. I used to call you servants. Now I call you friends. Jesus, what he's saying here, and this is hard for us to read because this is 2,000 years later across the globe. But what he's saying here is I've come to fulfill the law in which I have been under. You have been under. We've all been under. And I'm introducing a new way. I'm introducing a new covenant of which things are going to interact this way. Now, when you hear law, if you're a good um, Western evangelical, you think bad. The law is bad, right? It's religion, it's law. Actually, the law is good. The law was good. We hear law and we think, well, that's the, that was the bad way of doing things. Actually, the law was a good way of doing things for a season. Paul talked about this in Galatians 3. He said, the law was your guardian, Another translation says babysitter. I like that better. The the law was your guardian, was your babysitter until Christ came. It protected us until we could be made right with God through faith. And now that the way of faith has come, we no longer need the law as our guardian. Now, guys, babysitters, guardians are good things, right? 
Babysitters, the whole point of a babysitter is to solve a temporary problem until the permanent solution comes. And that's what Paul says the law is. This was a a temporary but good solution. Babysitters are good. We had a babysitter on Friday, Laura, who goes to our church. And here's the thing about a babysitter, specifically on Friday. Esther, our daughter, needed Laura. It was not going to go well if we left and Laura, the babysitter, did not show up. Laura, the babysitter, was a temporary but good solution to a problem that we had. And then, John 15, or Friday night, I want you to imagine the awkwardness of when Catherine and I come home and Laura stays. She doesn't leave. She says, well, I've I've done a pretty good job, so I think I'm just going to stick around for the next 17 years. (laughs) Of course not. Laura's great. Esther loves Laura. But Laura's not the, the best solution to Esther's problem. It's her parents. Laura's not the permanent solution to Esther's problem. It's Catherine and I. But we don't look at the babysitter and say, well, what a, what a pointless thing. No, the, the babysitter's good. But it's for a temporary solution until the more permanent and better thing comes. And Jesus comes and he says, the old vine, the old covenant, the old way, nothing wrong with that. It, wasn't, it was working for a time Now something better has come. I am the vine. That's all, and this is just verse 1. I am the vine, and when he says that, that would have been a paradigm shift. That's a covenantal shift. That's a new way of operating shift. And so Jesus says, I am the vine. There's a new covenant in town. And so then in verse 2 he says, and he cuts off, the gardener cuts off every branch in me that bears no fruit, while every branch that does bear fruit he prunes so that it will be even more fruitful. Now verse 2, especially at the beginning, um, and if you love theology, have studied a lot, you know that that's a pretty controversial or highly debated um, passage because some people and some of you are dying to know what's it mean when he says the gardener cuts off every branch in me. And most of you didn't notice and most of you don't care. I'm going to attempt to um, address this and not spend too much time on it, which in my experience means all of you will d- be disappointed. But the first part of, of verse 2 is um, I know what Jesus is trying to communicate here is permanency. The branch that does not remain in the vine is thrown away. That separation is decisive and it is complete. And the, the big thought around this is when he says the gardener's cutting off vine, or branches that are in me, is he cutting off Christians? Or were they ever really Christians to begin with? And guys, Tuesday afternoon got intense. I uh, got into so many commentaries. I got into Greek verb tenses that I don't even know in English. And here's what I found about this. I don't know. Um, I don't. And, and I almost cut the, this whole part out of the message because why would I say something that I don't know and waste precious time up here? Um, but I, because it's a vulnerable thing to say. I had a whole week to prepare and I don't know. And here's what gives me a little bit of comfort I have an opinion, I have a thought, but I'm not sure enough to teach it. What gives me some comfort, though, is is you don't know either. (laughs) You don't. Because I read some really, really smart people, and some of them said this, and some of them said that. And as I started to think, like, I spent, I don't know, three hours on Tuesday coming up with an answer of, I don't know. And so, of course, I'm like, well, that was a waste. I'm probably not going to say any of that. And then, and I'm going to go a little different direction. Then I thought, you know what, actually... I didn't lose any sleep Tuesday night. I don't know 
sometimes is actually the best answer that we can give. Um, often, I don't know is viewed as like a lack of knowledge, but I actually think maybe there's something else going on. And so when I wrote and, and, and determined I just don't know, there was actually some kind of peace that still came over me. And uh, over the last you know, few months, I've had a few people come up, and this has probably happened to you as a follower of Jesus. Like, what's it really mean to follow Jesus? And, and they start asking questions about following Jesus. And I love when they ask certain questions. I almost picture like a, um, a baseball game. They ask, like, are you, sure, um, are you sure that Jesus is the only way? And every time they ask that, I feel like they're just lobbing up a softball. And when you ask that, I can hit it out of the park. Or are we sure that we can trust the biographies that are written about Jesus? You ask that, and yes, we can. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, they've killed it. I know that they recorded it, and if you look at the way they overlap. Are we sure that Jesus is different than every other God? Yes, absolutely. Those questions are so good. I love getting those questions. And then every now and then, especially in the last few months, I've been asked certain questions like, so what's the deal with, like, judgment? And um, exactly how do we know about the certainty of that? And what about the age of accountability? And, I mean, different things that maybe you haven't even heard of. They're super complicated. And at the end of the day, the answer that I feel like I've found myself giving more and more is I don't know. And I started thinking this week, why have I started giving that answer? Because here's what I used to do when I'd be asked really hard questions that ultimately actually don't have answers is I would talk and I'd go really deep until you would just nod in submission to, like, sounds good. But I didn't actually arrive anywhere because I can't arrive anywhere because we just don't know. We think we know this much about God. Actually, we know about this much about God. And here's what I've determined, and, and here's the, at least the solace I'm taking, is I've thought way less about those questions. And, and there are answers to lots of questions. But I've thought less about those questions in the last five or seven years because the more that I get to know the gardener, the more that I'm comfortable with I don't know. And the more I've gotten to know the gardener, the more that I am fine, I'm actually not getting anxiety when I think, well, I guess he's in charge, and I trust him to run things. And, and not to say we shouldn't be asking hard questions and we shouldn't be going deep. Believe me, I went deep on Tuesday just to determine that not with any level of certainty, I, I don't know. There's just some things that are uh, literally above my pay grade. And yours as well. But the more that I've gotten to know the gardener, the more that I'm like, ah, man, but I just trust him. He's never let me down. We just sing that. The more I've watched him work in my life, it's like, but I, I'm, he's batting 100. He's never had a moment that uh, he's let me down personally, so I don't know why he would now. He won't. I'm just now singing that song. <laughs> I didn't even know, I didn't even line that up. We can trust the gardener. The vine is good and the gardener is trustworthy. Um, the second part of that verse is pruning. While every branch that does not bear fruit, he prunes, so that it will be even more fruitful. Proverbs three eleven through 12 says, My son, do not despise the Lord's discipline and do not resent his rebuke because the Lord disciplines those he loves as a father the son he delights in. This trustworthy gardener might every now and then start to remove things in my life and in your life that are uncomfortable at the beginning. It's like resetting a broken arm. That's more painful at the beginning in order for there to be healing in the future. Pruning is cutting away those parts 
of you and of me that are not going to help us bear fruit. And so this morning I thought, I was thinking about this for me, and I want to ask for you, where have you seen the gardener at work in your life? Where in your life are there things that he's slowly started to move in on and say, I'm, I'm just going to cut that. Actually, I don't, I don't think you're going to need that with where we're going. Where is the gardener at work in your life? And then verse 4, this will actually be the last one that we read. I want to hone in on this. Jesus says this key phrase, remain in me as I also remain in you. No branch can bear fruit by itself. It must remain in the vine. Neither can you bear fruit unless you remain in me. And so the goal of today in society often is be as successful as possible, be as comfortable as possible. Both of those aren't bad things, but Jesus says, I want you to be as fruitful as possible. And sometimes those directions go different. And I imagine, and we don't see this a whole lot, but I want you to imagine Jesus is teaching this, and maybe he's even looking at a branch on the ground. And he's like, I want you to imagine this. How can this thing, not connected to anything, ever bear fruit? He says the key to fruitfulness is that you would remain in me. The key to fruitfulness, the key to producing fruit both inside and outside of yourself is remaining, connecting to me. In business school, they had us take a whole class on how to make a resume, um, which seemed really excessive. And I don't remember a whole lot from it. Um, But here's what I do remember, and I I use this especially the first couple years out of college, is that every time you start a sentence about yourself in your career or your personal life, there should be some kind of action word that starts that sentence. It should be as action-oriented as possible. You need to show them that you've been doing something, you've done something. And I I felt, I was thinking this week, and I was like, that is the opposite. If I was going to make a spiritual resume and I followed Jesus' teachings... That's the opposite of what I think he would want me to put on there. Now, at some point, there is an element of go and make disciples, but before he said go make disciples, he said remain in me, abide in me, be connected to the vine. In business, in resume world, you need to be as active as possible, and following Jesus, it actually starts with being not passive, but still and connected because you are created for both dependence and you're created for connection. You're created, and and, and in this world, we're obsessed with being independent and being a good person. And those aren't, um, being a good person isn't a bad thing, but actually being independent is the antithesis of what following Jesus is. We're taught to be independent. We highlight and we celebrate independence when actually connection and dependence is what Jesus wants most. So remaining in Jesus, what does it look like? How do we remain in Jesus um, I came up with three, three things that we're going to talk about. Remaining in Jesus means that he gets the first of my time, the best of my attention, and all of my trust. If you're a note taker, this is what I would write down. He gets the first of my time. Who gets the first and best of my time? For me and for a lot of people, I know that's often the first hour of your day. But I don't want to narrow in on that. If you've got kids that wake up early or a job that starts really early, here's what it should be. Jesus gets first dibs on your calendar. Maybe it's the first hour of your day, maybe it's sometime else, but before any other meeting is made, he gets first on your calendar. Number two is attention. Who am I processing with first and most? Whose voice 
takes precedent in my life? Whose wisdom do I seek out more than anyone else's? And number three, he gets all of my trust. Who gets first say in what I believe and whom I obey? And if my preferences or my thoughts start to conflict with Jesus' teachings, who gets to win? Who runs the kingdom of your life? What king are you submitting to? So remaining in Jesus, it's not a whole lot of action. It starts with giving him time, attention, and trust. And sometimes that time might not be doing a whole lot, and this is for us type A people. I'm there with you. Sometimes it's not doing a whole lot. It's just being with him. It's listening to his voice. Um, I, uh, I love weddings. A few weeks ago, went to a wedding. David and Jenna and our church got married. Uh, six days from today, uh, our church, City Church, is going to have its first wedding here in this building. Um, I, lo- I really do. And uh, what I love most about weddings, and it's also the most, by far the most emotional part, is when the bride walks down the aisle. And so I'm doing Annie and Nathan's wedding, and I'm not nervous um, in six days. I'm not nervous to stand up here and speak in front of people. I'm not nervous that hopefully I'll get their vows right. I, I think I can do that. I am nervous for when Annie walks down the aisle. Because if I lose it, there's no one else up here to do the talking. And, uh, and history tells me that I bat about 50-50 when the bride comes down the aisle. There is a ton of emotion in that. I don't know where it came from. It was long before I ever had a daughter. Um, I think it started from, and this, I hadn't been to a whole lot of weddings before I went to my own. And uh, so I was kind of confronted with that quickly. Uh, I think it came from the first time that I saw Catherine work, walk down the aisle. I have a picture, first of all, of the, the, us at our wedding. I don't have allergies of any kind, but there were allergies were so bad that day. <laughs> this is... This is what it looked like when she came down. And on that day, it was June, 13, uh, June 8th, 2013, which if you're doing math, is nine years and 11 months ago. Um, I, when I saw her turn the corner, a flood of emotions came. The history of our relationship, all two years of it, came to my mind in a moment. I remembered how on the day that we met, Catherine had gone for the first time, gone to a prayer chapel and prayed for her future husband. It's crazy. The day we met, she decides earlier that morning to go pray for her future husband. I thought about all the times that we almost broke up because we didn't think that this was going to work out. I thought about all the times that I was being incredibly dramatic for a 22, 23-year-old college kid, begging God to bring me someone that I could do life with. I thought about all of those moments, and then I looked to my left, and um, six out of seven of my groomsmen were crying. Bunch of babies. My mom was crying, my dad was crying, and then I looked straight ahead, and, uh, and I saw Catherine, and I saw her dad, we have a picture of that, and he, I don't think I'd seen him cry at that point, but he was struggling. And then I started to think about why must he be struggling, it's because he's about to give away his most precious possession to me, the thing that he'd worked 23 years to parent and take care of. And he was struggling, hopefully because it was a happy moment. Maybe he was sad about it. I don't know. But he was struggling because he'd worked so hard and he had invested so much time to give her away. This moment is one of the most emotional moments that I've ever had in my life. And, um, 
And this is not a preaching cliche. This is not an exaggeration. My moments with Jesus even that week, this didn't hold a candle to them. When we really connect to the vine, and I'm not, I'm, I had to really think, I don't want to lie, I don't want to say something that isn't true. There were moments earlier that week that were even more sweet than this. I was thinking about all the times I would drive in my car. I had an hour commute to my job that I really didn't like, and I was wrestling with what it really meant to follow this Jesus for sure because this was sort of new in my life, and I was trying to figure out what the rest of my life would be like, and this hour commute was brutal, and I remember the last 20 minutes I would always put on worship music, and I'd go from I-65 from Columbus to Seymour, Indiana, home of John Mellencamp, and, uh, and I'd drive to my office, the place I didn't want to be, and I would just worship and my little Honda Civic. And there were moments in that driver's seat that were even more sweet and intimate and passionate than the moment that I saw Catherine walk down the aisle. The, the car that I used to drive, actually Megan, our kid's city leader, owns it now. And, uh, and so I see it every now and then when she comes over. I'll like look at that car and I'll get emotional because I'll remember all of the times just in that front seat that I got connected to the vine. Guys, there's some really sweet moments in our lives. But when we connect to the vine, I honestly, thoroughly believe the sweetest moments, the ones that don't hold a candle to anything else, are those moments that we actually remain in Jesus. When I actually get to hear the voice of my creator. And there's some really beautiful moments that we have this side of heaven but I think some of the most beautiful are simply when we follow Jesus' words. I'm going to end by reading Psalm 80. I'm going to read some of it, not all of it. Sorry, Psalm 84. If it helps, maybe close your eyes. How lovely is your dwelling place, Lord Almighty. My soul yearns, even faints, for the courts of the Lord. My heart and my flesh cry out for the living God. Even the sparrow has found a home, and the swallow a nest for herself, where she may have her young, a place near the altar. Blessed are those who dwell in your house, they are ever praising. Better is one day in your courts than a thousand elsewhere. I would rather be the doorkeeper in the house of my God than dwell in the tents of the wicked. For the Lord God is a sun and a shield, the Lord bestows favor and honor. No good thing does he withhold from those who walk, whose walk is blameless. Lord Almighty, blessed is the one who trusts in you. Lord, help us to connect to you. We thank you for this new covenant. And we ask that we would not try to live into the old. Lord, let us go directly to the source. Let us remain in you as you cause fruit to pop up in us. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to the sermon from our Sunday service. If we can serve you in any way, please visit our website at citychurchotr.com. If you want to be a part of what God is doing in Cincinnati, you can support us financially. Giving can also be done on our website at citychurchotr.com slash give.